this morning we are going to start a new journey together, a new sermon series. Can I just ask you guys, do, you, do y'all like this series thing? Is it, okay, just, I'm just looking for a few little head nods. Okay, that's, that's good, I hope so. I hope that it helps us kind of get our minds focused on, on a, a concept for several weeks so that it, it sinks in. And so um, this morning we're going to start an, a new series and we're going to call it Love Defined. And it's that time of year, it's, it's February. So February is when we start thinking about Valentine's Day. When we start thinking about Valentine's Day, we think about love a little more, us- more often than we usually do. And uh, some of us prepare to celebrate Valentine's Day, and then some of us plan to endure Valentine's Day. Uh, and um, so we're going to talk about love for several weeks. And when we hear the word love, there's lots of different things that come to lots of different people's minds when the word love is thrown out. When teenagers hear the word love, they usually think of the feelings that come when they get in the presence of that person that they kind of have a crush on. Or they get a text message from that guy or girl that they, that they have a crush on. When parents hear the word love in context... They usually think about their children and the lengths that we go to as parents to protect our kids, to provide for our kids. Uh, When many of us hear the word love, we reflect on the many years that we have spent sharing life with our spouse, uh, the one that we love and are to love more than any other person in the world. And then for some of us, when we hear the word love, it's, it's a promise of a future, hopefully a dream fulfilled, that we will find Mr. Right or Miss Right and begin a life together with them. When we, when we hear the word love, it, it causes different people to, to feel different things. Um, for some folks this morning, to hear the word love is a reminder of something very special that's been lost. Something very special. Maybe you have loved someone uh, dearly and deeply and, and they are not with you anymore. And, and if we are believers and we have faith in the gospel, then we know that that loss is only temporary. But at the same time, maybe Valentine's Day for those folks isn't quite as celebratory as it is for others. But these, along with lots of other things are things that people think of maybe when we hear the word love. And today we live in a culture that has diversified and redefined the word love in so many different ways that really in culture it's difficult to know what somebody's talking about when they use the word love. There are so many different emotions that we use the word love for. I love Jesus. I love Kim Welchel. I love my boys. I love a good steak, cooked medium. Uh, I love your Facebook posts sometimes. <laughs> you click on the little heart. You know, the day came, I remember the day when, when Facebook changed and, and you didn't just have a little thumbs up button, but you had the little heart button. 
And that means, well, you like what somebody said, you're like, yeah, that's awesome. But if you read something and you go, oh, that's really good, then you click the love button. There's so many different things that we mean when we use the same word. So for the next several weeks, I want us to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. It's not, in, it's not too long, but we are going to go verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to let God show us exactly what he had in mind when Paul described what real love is in 1 Corinthians 13. So this morning is going to be a bit of an introduction to that. So let's pray together before we, before we begin. Lord Jesus, we sing of your love as we have this morning so often. But God, what we want to make sure of over these next several weeks is when we speak of your love and when we speak of the love that you desire for us to have for one another, that we really understand exactly what we're talking about. That we don't mix up the way you define love with the way the world defines it. That we distinguish very clearly exactly what you mean when you tell us that you love us and when you command us to love one another. So this morning, just begin to open our hearts and our minds and teach us today and begin us on this journey, God, where you can literally, perhaps in the hearts of some of us, transform the way we use the word love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just begin this morning. I want you to find 1 Corinthians 13, and we're just going to read the chapter together as an introduction to what we're going to be covering over the next several weeks. So I'm going to be reading to you from the NIV, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am what? nothing if i call all i pos- if i give all i possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that i may boast but i do not have love i gain nothing love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, 
and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then, we will see face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is one of the most quoted, most well-known chapters in the Bible. And I would also propose that it may be one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible as well. Because when we read 1 Corinthians 13, very often we write our own 21st century American constructs into it as we read it. And we come up with a definition of what we think love means. So... Since we know that there are so many different things that we can mean when we talk about love, we need to determine exactly what kind of love is this chapter describing. What kind of love is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 13? So the way we're going to do that this morning, I'm going to give you some examples of the kind of love Paul is not talking about. You see, when, when you study the scriptures and we know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament's primary language, Greek. And we know that in the Greek language, Greek goes so much deeper and to so much greater length than English to describe the word love. We have one word to describe all of these different emotions, and we call them love. We're going to look at four of the most common Greek words that mean Love, but they have very distinct and individual meanings. And they all translate into the same English word, love. So I'm going to literally give you a little, a little Greek lesson this morning. So we're going to start with the very first one. There's four we're going to talk about. Four different words in the Greek language for love. And, and then we're going to talk about which one Paul is actually talking about. The first one is the word storge. S-T-O-R-G-E. Now, these are English transliterations of the Greek words. But storge is a word that means family love. It's the love of kindred. It's the feelings of love that you have for the people in your family. Um, it's an affection for those who are closest to us in our family. The, the, the phrases and forms of this word for love, are in the New Testament. They appear a few times. Here's one example. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. Now in verse 3, when, when Paul is writing to Timothy and he says he's talking about uh, the, the 
sinful, worldly generation, he uses that word without love in verse 3. That Greek word he uses there is storge. And he's talking about the fact that, um, because right before that in verse 2, he's talking about disobedience to parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. That's the word storge there. And he's talking about a love that basically a, a disillusion of the family. Basically, that in those generations, one of the things that we will see is the family disintegrate. The love that we have for the people in our family. Uh, it's, that, it's that affection. And, and you may be saying, well, I've got storge for some people in my family. But not everybody. <laughs> and that may be true. And that's for you to evaluate for yourself. But... But that is, that is what that first kind of love means. It's, it's the, love for, the love you feel for your parents, the love you feel for uh, your, your brothers, your sisters, the people in your family. That's a different kind of love than you feel for anybody else. So that's what storge is. That's the first one. The second one is philia. Philia. P-H-I-L-I-A. And philia is friendship love. This Greek word for love is often referred to as brotherly love. And it's in fact the root of the word Philadelphia, which is the name of the city. And what do we call Philadelphia? It's known as the city of what? Brotherly love. That's why. Because the root of the word Philadelphia is this Greek word philia which means brotherly love, a friendship bond. It's the close bond of personal affection between friends. And it describes a heartfelt, intimate friendship. Not just a casual, like, I go to school with this person, or I go to work with this person, or even that I go to church with this person. Philia is that deep, best friend, been through everything, always going to be there for you. I can be honest with you uh, no matter what. You know who those people are. The people that you would consider your greatest and deepest friendships. That's what Philia describes. Heartfelt, intimate friendship. It, and this is actually the kind of love that we are urged to hold for each other within the church. Look at First Peter Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. In this particular verse, when Peter writes, love one another, he uses the word philia. Don't just be casual in your friendships with one another. Don't just be casual in your relationships and the bond that you have with, with people of faith, with your church family. He says, love one another deeply. Build great friendships. Someone told me one time it was really hard to have deep friendships in the church. A pastor friend of mine told me that once. He said, man, when you're a pastor, it's hard to have really close friendships with people. And that kind of broke my heart. And I understood why he had told me that. 
And I, I, I had known about some of the things he had gone through, and I thought, wow, you know what? I just don't want that to be true. And when I became your pastor, that's one of the things that I, uh, I was a little afraid of. Because I need philia in my life. And so I believe that in Peter's admonition to the church to love one another, I think that is a call for us to have deep, meaningful, intimate friendships with one another. And you know who those people are in your life. So philia is the second word for love. Number three is eros, E-R-O-S. And eros is the Greek word that describes romantic love. It's the healthy, common expressions of physical love. Um, Eros is the Greek root that we get our English word erotic from. But we have sort of, in our culture today, we've taken that word and twisted it around and made it naughty and, and dirty. When you hear the word erotic, you usually think, oh, that's kind of dirty. But eros is not a, a dirty kind of romantic love, physical love. It's, it's meant to describe the love, the physical nature of love carried out between a husband and a wife. This is, this is also the modern-day English expression of love that comes to our minds when we first hear it. Like, when we talk about Valentine's Day kind of love, it's eros that we're thinking about. It's that romance. It's, that, it's those butterflies that we feel when we get around that person. It's, it's that desire to be with someone intimately. It, it's, it's romance, and romance is not a bad thing, y'all. It's a good thing. I actually, um, and the concept of romance is not something that's foreign to the Bible either. However, there is one interesting thing to note that the Greek word eros for this type of love is not used in Scripture at all. You won't find it in the New Testament anywhere. But, but eros is not a concept that's completely absent from the scriptures, when you read books like Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, this idea of Eros is all over the place in that book. But the actual word is never used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But um, I heard a, uh, there was a, a Christian singer songwriter. I, I used to go to concerts all the time when I was younger, uh, when I had time and money to do it. And uh, he, um, he used to every once in a while he would write love songs as as you know to his wife a part of, as part of his his songwriting and and uh, saw him in concert one time and he and he played one of these songs and he he said um, he said he he played a song at a concert one time and this beautiful saintly old man came up to him afterwards but he was a little crotchety and he came up to him and he said son I don't think you ought to be singing. Love songs like that. What does love like that have to do with being a Christian? <coughs> and, he, and he just kind of laughed. And he made a statement that I just really identified with. He said, you know what? 
He said believers and members of Jesus' church should be able to write the greatest love songs on the planet. If you want to know where the best love songs in the world, they ought to be coming from the church. And I'm talking about this kind of love. Romantic love. That is a gift from the Lord. And that is something that he desires for us to have. And so all three of these are concepts and expressions of love that we find in the scriptures. And they're very real, but I want, to, I want you to understand this morning, none of these is the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 is about. None of those. Those are not the kinds of love that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. Even though those are all real, they're very real, and they're very important. They're not what this chapter is about. The love that we'll be thinking about and meditating on through this series is captured with a different Greek word, agape. And that's a word that I'm sure you've probably heard before. All throughout 1 Corinthians 13, when you study every word for love in that chapter is the word agape. Agape is divine love. It's the richest of all words that describe love in the Greek language. An interesting note, it is the least common Greek word used in Greek ancient literature. It's the least commonly used word for love. But in the New Testament, it is by a huge margin the most often used word for love in the New Testament. It's love that doesn't... It's giving love. Okay? It, it's love that doesn't first consider the worthiness of the one receiving love, but it gives purely based on the character and merit of the one who is giving and expressing love. Where most of the others can tend to be conditional on who we're giving it to. Agape has very little to do with the person receiving the love. It has more to do with the person who is expressing and giving. It's the joyful desire to put the welfare of others ahead of our own. And you say, Eric, why is it so important that we understand what this word agape means? And why is it a big deal that we distinguish it from the others? Here's three things for you that are reasons that this study is going to be important to us for us to understand the difference between agape love and all the other loves that, that we're, we are exposed to in our culture. Here's number one. Agape is the love Jesus commanded we have for each other. Now, Peter, we said already, in some places, Peter uses that word philia to describe the love that we should have for one another. But when Jesus spoke... He used the word agape. Look in John 13, 34 and 35. This is one example. A new command I give you, agape one another. As I have agape you, so you must 
agape one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you agape one another. It's a love that is more concerned with the giving than the receiving. It, destri- it describes God's desire and model for his church, yet too often, and I think you'll, you'll understand what I mean, the church looks more like people who are more concerned with self-preservation than with inward transformation. Too often we let our walls serve Not even so much to keep people in, but sometimes to keep people out. And this is not the kind of love that Jesus desires for the church. He says that the world will know that you're my disciples if you agape one another. If you give, not based on the merit of whether you deserve it or not. but you give motivated by what's been given to you. Regardless of the merit of the person that you're showing love to. Number two, agape is the love that Jesus commanded we have for those who hate us. That's the second reason it's important for us to understand this kind of love. It's, it, he not only commanded that we have it for one another inside the body of Christ, but he, it, also people outside, but he went even further and said, not just people who are outside of the church, I want you to show agape to the people who hate you, to the people who are out to get you, the ones who would destroy you. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies, agape your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's easy for us to love each other compared to the people who come against us. And see, Jesus spoke these words to the Jews in a time and culture where they were being persecuted and literally terrorized by the Romans. When Jesus said to them, love your enemies, agape your enemies, he was talking about the Romans who could literally come in your house at any moment, take whatever they wanted from you, If you had daughters that they wanted, that included them. They could take them, have their way with them, take any material possessions they wanted to take from you, and you could do nothing about it. Those are the people Jesus was saying, love them. Give to them. Pray for them. Do kind things for them. See, Jesus said in Luke 6, 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. See, sometimes we get real proud of ourselves a little too quickly. 
and we think we're exhibiting, and we 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 think we're exhibiting the fullness of the love that Jesus desires for us to when we do nice things for one another. And that is part of agape, that we give to one another. That's absolutely part of it. But it's not all of it. And we get, we get real proud of ourselves real quick when we do nice things for people who do nice things for us. And Jesus kind of says, you know what? Like, that's great, but that's not quite as big a deal as you want to think it is. Because people who don't know agape, who have never experienced agape, they know how to do that. I mean, if you're in a gang, that's just code. You take care of me, I take care of you. It's, it, it, it's, that, that's something, that's a concept that the world understands to a certain point. But Jesus says, if you want to experience you want to let the fullness of agape be seen in your life, begin to give it to the people who don't deserve it. Begin to show it to people who can't give it back to you and who don't want to give it back to you and actually would want to return evil for it. He says, do it anyway. Number three, third reason. That this is important. Agape is to be the love in us because it's the love that rescued us. Very simply put, why do we need to understand what agape love means? It's because of agape love that you don't go to hell. It's very, very important that we understand that. And the only way we can show it is if we've experienced it. Romans 5, 8. Very familiar verse. But God demonstrates his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until you cleaned yourself up and made yourself better to save you. He didn't wait until you were a little more worthy of it before he poured out his agape for you. Agape pursues the ones who aren't looking to be pursued. It gives even before it's even asked. And it gives not because the recipient is worthy, but only because of the faithful love of the giver. We will never be able to show the agape love of God in the world until we have received it ourselves. And love is perhaps one of the greatest human needs that we have. And there are people all around us who are trying to fill that need with all those other kinds of love. And God said, when I created you and I made that love space in your life, it's shaped like agape. That's the kind of love that fulfills. You know, when when we're dating... Sometimes we throw that phrase, I love you, around a little loosely, don't we? And I see it in this culture, especially in youth ministry. It, it always drove me nuts when I heard two seventh graders tell each other that they, I love you. I love you. I love you too. I'm like, no, you don't. 
you don't. Uh, and, and I've been known to just straight up say that to him before. It's like, quit saying that. Quit telling your boyfriend that you love him. Because you don't. You're not old enough to know what that means yet. Because as I grew older, I heard somebody once say, be very careful how you use the words, I love you. Because those are the words that nailed Christ to the cross. And if you want to think about, there were three, there were three places that they attached Jesus to the cross. One through his feet and one through both hands. I love you. And so I would tell kids, don't throw that word around. And when, and when Kim and I were dating, um, I had this, and she probably thought I was weird at the beginning of it, when we had started dating, and, and, it, was, and it was very obvious that I had a thing for her and that I was, I was hoping she was going to stick around for quite a while. I had this weird, awkward conversation with her because my emotions led me to want to say those words to her just maybe two or three times after going out with her. But I, I, I had a, we kind of had a talk one night, I remember, and I said to her, um, look, I'm not going to tell you I love you yet. And I explained to her why. And I said, I just really have this conviction that, that those words are really, really super important. And I'm not going to say them to you until, until I can mean it. And she was like, okay. And she totally understood that. And then I also had to say to her, look, like, just because I say it doesn't mean that you have to say it back. Or if you say it to me first, I'm not just going to automatically say it back to you just because that's sort of the, the code in dating. When whoever says it first, the other one's going to say it, you know. And, and we sort of made an agreement that we weren't going to do that. And we've done the best we, we could to teach our boys that same thing. Don't, don't just throw those words around because they're important. They're powerful. They moved heaven and earth to give us a relationship with God. And it's only until we experience the cross that we can really say and act out love and really understand it and really mean it. So that's our goal for the next several weeks is to wrap our minds and hearts around agape. What is it and how do we show it?